Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 195, recorded August 12th, 2020. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I am Brian Hawkins. And this episode is brought to you by all the cool work that we're doing. Tell you more about this. Right now, I kind of just want to think about paying attention to stuff, Brian. Maybe okay. watching things. Oh, like look closer. <laughs> yes, like watch carefully. So actually, this thing uh, sent over by Prace and Daniel... He sends us a bunch of good topics and links. And this one's called Watchdog. And maybe you've heard of it. It's uh, the foundation of some web frameworks, for example, and things like that to know if, say, a file has changed that you're editing, does it need to auto restart the website? So when you refresh it, it actually reruns it, things like that. But Watchdog is a cool little library that you can use just on your own to know if something has changed. So basically, it's a simple little API. You create this thing called an observer and you tell it to just start watching in some way, and you give it a path, it can recursively look, uh, you can give it like a pattern or whatnot, and it will say, just basically start firing events back on this observer thing when stuff happens. Files created, files deleted, files modified, and so on. Nice. This is cool. Yeah. Isn't that cool? It also comes with a CLI script called Watch Me Do. And what you can do with watch me do is just type watch me do all one word log and wherever your current working directory is when you type that, it will just start watching for files that change right there, just like on the command line. Oh, okay, cool. So if you're you know, you don't want to write a program, but you're just happen to be somewhere and you're like, what is happening like what files are being modified or being touched or being changed here? And you can just type that and then boom, there it goes. That's cool, right? That actually is really cool. Yeah. We have a build process that Part of it is mucking up some directories and be kind of cool to use something like this. To yeah, absolutely. And so you could just pip install watchdog and then just type watch me do space log wherever you want it to know. There's a bunch of uh, other things it does that you can pass commands and stuff, I suppose. Like you could ask it to recursively watch or whatever, but yeah, I haven't had a use case for that. So, but yeah, this is a cool recommendation from Prison. Yeah, nice. The example that I think I could possibly use it for is. And one of the things that we do that makes Python Bytes.fm, as well as all the TalkPython, TalkPython training sites, ridiculously fast as a user is we don't require you to re-download almost any of the static content. The Anything JavaScript, any image in the entire site, you know, CSS, all of those things, they're cached for a year, mm. right? And so a problem with caching stuff for a long time is if you redeploy a new version something's wacky, right? Something is really weird. Like I have this problem with Twitter and Firefox. I'll go there and periodically it'll just say something went wrong, can't load it. And a, a command R, a hard refresh always fixes it because there's probably some JavaScript file that's like out of sync with some other part of some API or some random thing like that. And so what we do to make sure that never happens is we look at every one of those static files that we have a year-long cache on, and we read it, and we create the hash, and we put question mark hash equals the hash of the file on the end of it so that, you know, that's a separate file. If it ever changes one character of it changes, the hash changes, and it's now a totally separate thing in the web browser cache, right? All of this is perfect. The one drawback is to make things fast, you're not rehashing all the images on every request. Is it just says, have I seen this file before? Do I already compute the hash? Just use it, right? So that's fine. But that means that little hash refresh trick only really works if I 
restart the website mm. if like say only a, a css file changed i could use this watchdog to watch all the static files that were hashing if any of them change just instantly recompute the hash that's it so that would allow, allow me to do like push deploys of just you know static content changes without kicking the website at all and it would just magically like redetect those and start rolling i think i might start using watchdog for that yeah. anyway that's my use case that makes me excited and i'm glad you pronounced watch me do because i looked at it and i went watch meadow that's a weird name that, that is a weird <laughs> i think it's watch me do <laughs> watch me do is better yeah yeah you know what else is weird <laughs> weird http status codes like i'm very familiar with 400 bad requests that's when somebody's created an api and i talk to it badly and they've created the api correctly or I get a 500 where there is, their stuff has crashed because I sent them something bad and they've written their API badly. But somewhere in between there lives some odd <laughs> thing, right? Yes. Have you heard of error code 418 before? I'm a teapot. <laughs> <laughs> this is just great. So uh, I love it. I love it. Status code 418. I'm a teapot. Any attempt to brew a coffee... With a teapot should result in an error code 418, I'm a teapot. The resulting entity may be short and stout. <laughs> so uh, The resulting entity may be short and stout. I love it. This actually got brought up in a conversation I was having this morning. A colleague of mine, Andy Howe, suggested it. He said, so when is Python 3.9 going to come out? Because hasn't it been a while? And as a reminder to everybody, Python 3.9 candidate release or the release candidate one or RCCR or whatever is out now so you can play with it it's probably i've been using it it's safe to use but the uh the schedule for the release final release is in october i believe and then after that bug fixes releases every couple months are planned if there are any andy said you know my favorite enhancement for python 3.9 is this uh 418 i'm a teapot this is new in python 3.9 HTT library was missing the status code 418 i'm a teapot and and now it has it in there but wow i've got some links for you because uh in the show notes there's this is reference from htcpcp which is hypertext coffee pot control protocol and this came out in in 1998 as an april fool's joke and then it's kind of part of it now so it's Part of HTTP, sort of <laughs> another fun uh, error code. So HT, the document, the entire document for HTCPCP says that most error codes share the same status codes as HTTP. However, uh, 418 is separate, but also now HTTP can use that also. But also 406, not acceptable. So 406 is uh, this response code may be returned if the operator of the coffee pot cannot comply with the accept addition request, unless the request <laughs> was in a head. So, um, and it should return the list of possible coffee additions. This is bizarre that this is in the world. but <laughs> This is awesome. I really love it. I don't realize, I didn't realize it had been taken so far as this. This is great. And, you know, if you go and look at the thing you linked to, the hypertext coffee pot control protocol htcpcp slash 1.0 the whole memo describes so much of this thing and it even talks about things like crossing firewalls like modern coffee pots do not use fire however a firewall is useful in protecting it 
And it also addresses the security considerations. Anyone who gets between me and my morning coffee should be insecure. Unmoderated access to unprotected coffee pots from internet users might lead to several kinds of denial of coffee service attacks. The improper use of filtration devices might admit Trojan grounds. Filtration is not a good virus protection method. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's beautiful. <laughs> yes. And there's, <laughs> In a, uh, there's a yeah, security layer that I I forgot about that's funny, too, that's part of this, but I can't find it right now. Yeah, no worries. I threw in a quick link also to um, this place called httpstatuses.com, which this is a slightly more serious take, although it does, of course, include the coffee pot. But it's just, if you were like, what the heck should I be doing, you know, in this situation? Like, here's the error codes, here's so on. If you just click on them, it gives you a, like, really nice summary. Like, if you click on 403, for example, it talks about when it's used and, and when it's, like, how it compares to 404. And then also how that reference code is set up as an enumeration in different languages. So, for example, in Go, it's http.statusforbidden. In Rails, it's colon forbidden. And in Python 3, it's http.hpstatuses.forbidden and things like that. So it tells you like the the language version instead of typing it all in yourself and having magic strings and numbers everywhere. Yeah. So it does look like, uh, I don't know what Symfony is, but both Symfony and Go do also support 418 status. <laughs> Beautiful. We're on, back, we're on par with Go in terms of the internet now. Very good. That was a good one. I almost could have been the joke, but I, I like it. All right. Also, things that I like is uh, that we get a chance to create amazing stuff to help people get better with Python out there. So over at Talk Python Training, we have three new courses coming very soon. We have Getting Started with Data Science. We have Moving from Excel to Python. And we have Diving into Python Memory Management and Optimizing Your Programs around that. All three of those are coming within probably a month or so. So you want to get notified about that just visit training.talkpython.fm and right at the front there's a little email place you can enter your email address to get notified how about you i wanted to highlight testing code so pytest 6 is out and so testing code is uh, the other podcast i do at testingcode.com and i had talked last week that there was going to be a pytest 6 um, episode and instead of doing it just by myself i contacted Anthony Sotilli and had him come on the show. And so we BS about stuff for about an hour, some of its actual content. So I'm really trying to get, I'd really like to have the shorter episodes on there, but you know, I get talking with somebody and it's just fun. So <laughs> just keeps going. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely a good one. People should check it out. Uh, what do we got next? We talked about Pydantic, right? So Pydantic is a cool library. You know, it's something I really just need to start using. Like I haven't created a new, any new projects that probably really deserve this, but I think it's definitely one of those things that I want to start using because it's just so slick. The ability to say, I have these models, they have these types, you can validate them, you can auto-convert between them, and so on, right? So we talked about that not too long ago, actually. However, Andy Shapiro sent over a heads up about a new feature that's in the beta version of Pydantic that's coming that makes me pretty excited actually I, I don't know we'll see how people feel about this but i'm excited about it i'm excited because i'm a fan of type hints yeah me too i love type hints yeah i love them mostly because the way they l make the editor help <laughs> me write code instead of going and saying oh how do i do this thing with this library right if i just say the type of this thing is one of the objects out of that library and i hit dot boom 
the editor shows me all the stuff I can do and just keeps me in flow and working on what I need to. So I, I love type hints mostly for that, but also for the validation. One of the things they are like, but they do not do, is they are not like static typing in other programming languages where somehow that verifies what's being passed, right? Yeah. So like, for example, if I have a function, it says it takes an integer, an age colon int, and that's what it says it takes. But then I go and I write code and I give it quote seven instead of the number seven. That's fine. Python's like, yeah, that's cool. You probably don't know what you're doing, but whatever. We're just going <laughs> to let it fly, right? Well, with Pydantic, there's this new type annotation validator. And so what you can do is you can say, for this function, it has type annotations, and I want those to mean something. Oh, okay. Okay, so it gives it basically that it's not runtime behavior in the static languages. It's a compile error, right? Your argument string cannot be converted to enter whatever the comp compilation error happens to be. But it would give you the runtime equivalent. So all you have to do is you have a regular Python function, and it has regular types, just like it would, you know, s colon stir count colon int, that type of thing. And you can just work with it. It's a little bit smarter than the, the compiler, maybe of say like C++ or C Sharp though, in that what you do is you just say at validate arguments. So you give it a decorator that validates the arguments. And not only does it validate, but it will convert if it can. So for example, uh, I'll put an example in our show notes. There's a function called repeat. It takes a string and a, a number, and it's just going to echo out that string however many times that number exists, right? So you can say repeat quote hello comma three, and it'll print hello three times. Super simple. That passes the validation precisely because it takes a string and an integer. But you can also say repeat hello comma quote four, and it'll still print out hello four times because it can take the string four and make it an integer four. Oh, that's cool. Right? But if I say repeat hello comma goodbye, boom, exception, validation error, you know, the value is not a valid integer, type equals type error inter integer or whatever, like some message there, right? So it says the count parameter is not and cannot be converted to the type specified by the type annotation. Oh, yeah, this is cool. How do you feel about this? I obviously don't want uh, runtime typing for all of Python code. It's not, I don't want it, but for special places, like uh, maybe maybe around your API. Exactly. The boundary of libraries, like stuff going in there. Yeah. You're like, please don't send me the wrong data. Like, what? El what is your other alternative, right? If you really want to validate that, you have to do is instance of an int or try to cast it to an int and you got to raise your own exception type and all that kind of stuff. You're already going to have to do that work if you're writing a good API or you're going to send out weird errors like int does not have, you know, type int does not have function split or some weird thing and people have to realize like, oh, what that means is you type some kind of, you send a number where a string value is accepted, right? So this, yeah. if you really do depend on the types that you specify in your type annotation, this seems like a good idea to me. The one drawback is this cannot make your code faster, <laughs> <laughs> right? If it's doing both validation and type conversion yeah. in front of your code, it can't be faster than just not doing that. But, you know, but it might make your development it's not always about faster, speed. So. Exactly, and, and may make your sanity. Yeah, so one of the the ways people get, have gotten around this in the past is instead of, is like for an example, doing, instead of uh, trying to validate parameters to a to function at an API level, have the parameters bundled into like a um, an adder's object and have adder's validators written 
because adders does have right, right. Put it into a, a validated object type yeah. and then pass that thing over. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. Which is kind of what this is. Yeah, but without doing it, this is cool. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I like it too. I was leaning pedantically previously. This makes me lean more that way. I like it. All right. So one of the things that's really cool is you know we've had a lot of conversations about is Python fast? Is it slow? Is it fast for coming up with uh, programs that work? Does it execute fast? Should you use libraries like Cython or rewrite some stuff in Rust? But uh, Anthony Shaw, he took it to another level, like further down than even something like rewrite bits in C or compile Python to C or something. Yeah, I, th- I think this is maybe an example of Anthony just having too much time in his hands, I think, maybe. <laughs> so Anthony wrote a, I just tried it this morning, a project called PyMult, P-Y-M-U-L-T. You can pip install it, and it just multiplies numbers, and it only works for positive integers or negative integers. It just doesn't do, it doesn't ever display negative numbers. Anyway, regardless of that, it's an extension for Python written in assembly, because why not? And because of Anthony. As in like MV and you know, add, like the assembly language, that's the foundation of basically every other programming language yeah in anthony's uh, twitter announcement he says after a series of highly questionable life decisions my python extension <laughs> written in pure assembly is now on pypi it required an assembly extension for distutils he also wrote a github action support so it's running ci cd and testing with pytest above and beyond over the top but there is some coolness of it so it's a proof of concept to demonstrate how to create a python extension in 100% assembly, it's a, and then how to write a, um, you know, how to link those up, how to call a C API and create a Py object and parse PyTubal and stuff like that. Basically, all the stuff you have to do to get point parameters back and are and values out of an extension written in assembly. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. So I like it actually. Yeah, and anyone wants to know what the code looks like? It's like move. Rax comma x, i mole, q word of y, move result to rax, move Eddie to result. Like it's, yeah. Well, but then you get a call pi long from long, which is kind of a, a cool thing. So there's this like interesting mix between the just pure assembly language and the C data types of C Python. On a serious note, though, anybody wanting to learn a little bit of assembly or something, it's not like often you need some sort of environment to try it out in. Having some way to link Python and uh, assembly is kind of neat, actually. So I'm grateful for that. Like you're right, some of these commands. <laughs> I mean, I wrote some assembly in college. That was a long time ago. Yeah. Well, I, you know, had tip to Anthony because that's some impressive stuff. Yep. <laughs> Would you say it's easy, though? <laughs> no. No. That's hard mode. Yeah. You know what actually is not as easy, I think, as it should be? And it's honestly just bizarre are properties in Python, as in at property, some function return some value, converts what looks like a function call over to something that looks like field access, right? Yeah. But why, oh, why does it have to have this like bizarre sequence of conventions where I have an app property and then a function that has a name? Okay, that defines the name of the property. That makes sense. But then the subsequent thing, if I want to be able to set that, I have to say, you know, if I, the property was A, then I have to say decorator A.setter and also have a function that is called A. Like the a dot setter stuff is weird, and then the order of the setter 
varies as well, right? It has to be or is constrained. It has to be after the property A. And what I've found also is that you can run into issues with inheritance. I think if the property is defined in the base class, you try to create a setter on a drive class, things don't work right as well, which is all kinds of weird, right? So there's just like, this is supposed to make life easy. Why is this so complicated? Like, surely there was just another alternative that was like easier to do to implement as well. Anyway, it's always kind of been one of the bizarro things of Python. That said, I love properties. I love that you can do like lazy calculation with them. You don't have to store them. It's part of the memory. If you, they can be recomputed from the values, there's a lot of good reasons to have them. So Rude Vanderham sent over this cool project, which he created called Easy Property. And do you know what? It's easier than regular properties. Okay. I think that's why he named it that. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is, you know what you could do? Instead of have this property and then at a dot setter or a dot deleter is you could just say there's a at getter at setter at deleter on the thing. And it doesn't matter what order they are or if they're all defined. Like, for example, you can't have a setter without a getter. Now, conceptually, you should never really do that. But just, you know, syntactically, like those things have to be defined there. And like I said, in the sort of base class, derived class type of thing, it gets wonky as well. So with this, you just create a function. The function name is the name of the property. And then you put at getter on it. And that makes it the kind that is, you know, the getter property. If you want to have one you can set, you say at setter. The order doesn't matter or anything like that. Nice. Isn't that nice? Yeah. So there's a, um, a cool little example that he wrote. You know, you can do them separately, which is probably what I would recommend and do, but you can also have an at getter setter. <laughs> so you can have one function whose job is to both do the, be the, the getter and the setter operation of the property. And then the way it works is just the value is set to be like some default value, which is what happens in the, you know, in the get version. You can have an at documenter. You can have an at documenter. So you can also have uh, documentation for your property and there's a little function that will come up and do that so anyway it's it looks pretty nice to me it's not one of those things that's going to be you're taking a heavy dependency upon to give it a try right it's not like a a runtime thing like for example that validate arguments that's in between every time you call a function all the time all the time right so like this is type of thing like if it's going to work it's going to work clearly or it's just not going to work at all so give it a try and see if it makes you happy and uh if it sparks joy you can have an at getter. And I like the syntax better than properties. Just yeah. more so. Yeah. And you know, I think at property is just fine. Like, okay, that totally, but you know, at property name dot setter, like that just drives me, it's just so bizarre and weird in the ordering and the dependencies of it existing in the same class hierarchy level. Like, yeah, don't get me started. So this is cool. I, I like it. Thanks for developing that and sending that, yeah. sending that over, Rude. So we talked about assembly and properties and decorators and stuff. So if anybody's left listening to this podcast, <laughs> we do have more to <laughs> Let's talk about. Let's talk about recursion. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist uh, highlighting the last topic. So there was an article by Ryan Howard that was on the testproject.io blog called Non-Blocking Assertion Failures with PyTest Check. And I had to highlight it because it's really the first time anybody's ever uh, written an article about something I wrote. So that's yeah, neat. Yeah, very cool. So PyTest Check is a library that allows you to do multiple failures within a test, mostly because assert normally you use asserts, but asserts 
stop after the first failure and sometimes you want more and i never really thought about the different use cases but uh, so orion has the use case of using it with selenium because sometimes when you're testing a page coming back you might have to test multiple aspects of it like what's the his example was uh what's the content of some field and also uh if the url is correct or something and i think with like a selenium or some sort of web test that totally makes sense because you'd have things like you want to check the error code and content and whether somebody's name shows up then a whole bunch of stuff you could check and having multiple things right you don't necessarily have just one assertion that captures all of the the essence of what you're trying to determine right yeah and so i also link to the uh the pytest check library and then or plugin uh, and then also an article that i wrote back in way back in 2015 where i started thinking about this and thinking how to solve it so okay yeah yeah, very cool. Nice um, article, right? And then uh, I also wanted to um, do a public service announcement that because both Ryan and Anthony got this wrong, there are no capital letters in PyTest. So. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me try this. Let me just... Yeah, okay. On this one, but if I go over to Word and I type PyTest is a testing framework, I'll bet you that Word makes it capital. Yep. Doesn't that change? Doesn't that make it real? <laughs> no. <laughs> I know PowerPoint well. So No, yeah, that's always tricky, right? When the... You have sort of a formal name, but the formal name is it doesn't have spaces or it's lowercase, but I'm, I'm fine with we it. We got used to it with iPhone, so there's no capital. I mean, the P is capitalized in iPhone, but yeah, what, but will Word uh, correct you, I wonder, if you try to type iPhone? I would doubt it. I mean, but that's Apple, and they think differently. That's what they tell me. <laughs> but there's others. I mean, so there's some, I guess it's a weird thing with uh, tools and stuff. Some tools don't care whether you, like, whether you capitalize or not, mm-hmm. the people in PyTest like it not capitalized. So, yep. anyway. Yeah, uh, let's uh, let's respect their lowercase p's. <laughs> yep. All right. So, I have uh, three really quick things. They're all kind of fun. So, PyMC is a cool library for Bayesian analysis and probabilistic programming in Python. So, Alex, one of the core developers there, sent me a message said, hey, we're planning the first ever PyMC on. Okay. Pi, <laughs> pronounced PyMC on because it's so on, they say. And it's the first Bayesian community online conference around PyMC. So if you're into a probabilistic programming with Python, check it out. There are a bunch of um, cool stuff they got going on. They're also, I think, have a call for papers. So if you want to do a pre- presentations. So if you want to do a presentation, shoot them a note. And yeah, I'll I'll link to that in the show notes. Second, a while ago, we talked about rumps. Quite a while ago. Rumps is ridiculously uncomplicated Mac, I don't know, something. uh, Menu programs or something like that. And so I ended up, I was sitting around. I have this little library that I run because so many things in my life require taking a title or taking some words and turning them into a file name or a URL name, right? So suppose I've got the title of a, a video and I want to name an MP4 file that, and it's got like a colon in it or like a forward slash or some random thing that shouldn't be in there. I don't want spaces. I want it. So I wrote this little command line utility called URLify that I would just run. It would take whatever's in the clipboard and replace it with that canonicalized version that would work well as a file name. Oh, cool. Yeah. And that was cool. But then 
I got tired of like always firing up the command line, uh, the terminal. Maybe it's busy doing something else. So I got to do a new window, run that thing, and then close it down. And I was like, I just want to click something once, <laughs> right? I don't want to click the terminal and then start a new terminal. And it was like not that much work, but you can imagine the way I'm going on and on about this. I must be doing it more than is reasonable. So what I did is in like 45 minutes, I converted that command line app to a mac.app file like a full-on.app file that i could just ship to any mac user they have no idea it uses multiple python packages a code that i wrote and it runs as a gui auto starting with my mac os when i log in in my menu bar oh, wow. is that cool yeah and so i i linked to a little um tweet that has a screenshot just says convert text but actually i changed it to url fi text trim text and so now i can just click up there and any text that i have you know if you copy something and you want to like paste an email or like, but maybe it's got a bunch of white space. You're like, why is this all here? Right. Instead of putting in a text editor and just getting the little bit out, I just hit that and then I'll trim it or like a good lowercase text. So like have these like little cool, like clipboard text transforms. And it all took like 45 minutes to turn it into a Mac app with pie to app and rumps. Oh, wow. So yeah. Are you sharing this somewhere? I will happily share it. Okay. But I don't have the, the GitHub repo public yet. So let me just like put like, a screenshot and what the heck it is. And then I can make it public, but yeah, so I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. And finally, I just want to let people know who are taking courses over at talk Python. I was sitting around and I decided I want, as you hover over the scrubber, I want it to show, show a little thumbnail of where you would go in the video. If you were to click the scrubber in that location, what's the scrubber? We're not like the little like time thing where you can click around oh, yeah. and like okay. zoom ahead and whatever. And we're not like reusing Vimeo or YouTube or something that might potentially do that. I think YouTube does it. I don't know that Vimeo does. Anyway, I recently figured out how to do that. So uh, if people are interested, uh, they can could, they could check it out. But there's a cool little trick where you can take a second hidden video player and point it at either the same video or a smaller version of the video. And then as the mouse moves, just seek it to that time and show it above where the mouse is. Nice. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so if, if people need something like that, yeah, a little cool trick you might consider. Not not that often in Python, but if you happen to make your way to the JavaScript side of things, you'll do a lot of that, I guess. So is that in your for your training site? Has it been updated then? Yeah, exactly. Okay. It's not updated as we speak because I'm still busy transcoding 200 hours of video to 500 by 200 size. So I'm about halfway through that. I've had to, yesterday I uploaded 200 gigs of data. I'm so going over my data limit this <laughs> this month. <laughs> that was 20% of my uh, data limit in one day. I got more to send. So, but yeah, it'll be there as soon as the videos are done. It'll turn it on. I'm going to back up a little bit. This PyMC, yeah. probabilistic programming. Can I use this to make a probability drive a probability drive yeah is this from science fiction i don't know it like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy oh so, no yeah i would think so yeah. i would begin by feeding it the number 42 and see what comes out maybe yeah that, that's, that's probably the natural first step yeah all right speaking of jokes we've got two you want to go first yes this was submitted by reuven Lerner, inspired by anthony shaw i used to do low-level programming then a product i bought told me no assembly required since then, I've been coding in Python. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Except for Anthony. Anthony's coding in assembly. He codes in both, yeah. His Python is assembly code or something like that. So this one, like last week, we talked about little bobby tables. 
who's beautiful over at XKCD. And I've, I've got another XKCD for us, but this one is not about databases. No, it's about source control and Git. Okay. All right. You want to be the, the woman developer that asks the question? I'll, I'll, yes. I'll, read it. I'll start us off. All right. So there's a couple developers speaking. First one is talking about this new source control. This is Git. It tracks collaborative work on projects through a beautiful distributed graph theory tree model. Cool. How do we use it? Uh, no idea. Just memorize these shell commands and type them to sync up. If you get errors, save your work elsewhere, delete the project, and download a fresh copy. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because it happens too often, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think most people have like the, the four or five or six Git commands that they use all the time and everything else they have to look up if they need it. Yeah. Like, merge conflict. All right, I'm deleting it. I'm going to copy this back over. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Funny indeed. Well, thanks for being here as always. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.